this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I am Megan Wildhood, a host on New Books and Poetry, a part of the New Books Network. I'm back here um, with another interview. I am so excited to talk about this book. Um, I'm going to introduce our guest, and then we're going to jump in. So Cynthia Marie Hoffman is the author of Exploding Head, Persia Books 2024. This is the one we're going to be discussing today. Um, Call Me When You Want to Talk About the Tombstones, Persia Books 2018, Paper Doll Fetus, Persia Books 2014, and Sightseer, Persia Books 2011. Hoffman is a former Diane Middlebrook Poetry Fellow at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, director's guest at the Civitella Rainieri Foundation, and recipient of an individual artist fellowship from the Wisconsin Arts Board. Her poems have appeared in Smartish Pace, Lake Effect, Blackbird, The Believer, The Los Angeles, Los Angeles Review, and elsewhere. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cynthia. I am so excited to talk about your upcoming book. Thank you so much, Megan. I'm glad to be here. Yay. All right. Well, I want to jump in. There's there's so much amazing stuff in this book. Um, I would like to start big picture. Um, talk to me about the inspiration of this book. Uh, did you set out to write a collection? Was it kind of you were writing and these poems found themselves to be a collection? How did this how did this all begin? Well, this is a collection of prose poems about my lifelong journey with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I actually, it's funny when you ask that question, I am always writing a book. Everything I do is going to be a book. (laughs) I'm very interested in the idea of the project book um, and putting constraints on things. And I think that a lot of that actually comes from when I was an undergraduate at George Mason, I had a poetry professor who asked us to write diptychs and triptychs. So two poems that go together and three poems to go together. And as soon as I learned that three poems could go together, there was no going back. (laughs) Everything had to be three poems. (laughs) And then it just got longer and longer until I started to think in terms of the book. And some of my favorite collections of poems, I'm really more interested in the book as a thing that works together and how poems speak and build upon each other Um, more so than the single poem itself. I just am so fascinated by the project of a book. So I didn't know that I could write a collection of poems about obsessive compulsive disorder. It was hard for me to write about it in the beginning, but my intention is always to write a book. That's an, I love that. That's such an amazing answer. Um, I, uh, this book did feel like it was written as kind of a whole. Um, There are several images that kind of weave themselves throughout uh, this, uh, this collection. I won't spoil it for readers, but there's one in particular that I am, I'm very interested in, and that is the angel or angels. And um, they, you layer as they show up periodically throughout this collection, the meaning uh, of their appearance uh, gets layered more and more. Um, so uh, I obviously I have thoughts about what the angels are, but I'd love to hear what they what they mean to you insofar as it doesn't give away anything in the book. Well, I don't think it will give away too much in the book to say that there was an angel figure who was in my bedroom when I was a child 
<laughs> and that figure appears in the book. And I don't really know if that figure is a manifestation of OCD or something else, but I always felt the presence of this angel in my room. And you think angel, okay, it's a guardian angel. It's someone who looks over you. You have nice, nice, happy feelings about angels, but this angel terrified me. I was horrified. <laughs> I could just feel the presence of this overwhelming shape and form and like like kind of like a density in the corner of my room and I felt that he was gonna lean over and whisper the secret of heaven in my ear and I don't know why I would have been afraid of that or where that idea came from but that angel was in every room of my life like it followed me to college it followed me to the townhouse I lived in with my now husband it followed me up to Madison Wisconsin when I moved here for a poetry fellowship it you know um and in fact as I started to write more and more about the angel and say it out loud it felt so utterly ridiculous the first time I said it out loud but I noticed that the angel started to fade and is in fact no longer in my room so there's also a poem in the book about the angel leaving, um, which I sort of missed that presence once it was gone. But I think writing about things, it's just a testament to the power of exploring things in poetry that you can't explore in other ways of communicating in your life. Um, and in fact, saying it out loud gave me power over this thing that really terrified me for so many years. That's to that's totally true. I think, I mean, there's, that's what happens in the Bible, right? People, angels show up and people are terrified of them. We Absolutely. Think, right? Like we think, oh, we want our guardian angels. We want angels to be there. They're going to be like singing and floating around on harps, wearing little white dresses. And it's like, no, they're actually scary. They're scary presences. That's what, that's how they're described in the Bible. <laughs> people are afraid when they show up. So yes. that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, but also the thing you said about naming a thing, writing about a thing, calling it out and putting it concretely on paper, um, gives you the writer, your power back, gives you agency over the thing you're writing. And that, uh, sparked a question for me about, um, what do you find is the relationship between, you as as the writer and the work so like you're the the artist the creator the writer the the mother of this work as you will um and how independent is the work from you as the writer and the creator i think for this book in particular exploding head it is the most personal piece of writing i've ever done i tend to historically right from research. My first collection, Sightseer, was based on my travels through Europe. And I did a lot of research, um, you know, in my travel guide and in the history of the countries I visited. And Paper Doll Feed Us, my second collection, is a collection of poems about midwifery, um, things that can go wrong with birth and fetal development throughout history. I mean, I was surrounded by texts that I was researching um, you know, things from the 1600s that made it in, into my book. And my third collection, Call Me When You Want to Talk About the Tombstones, is actually a book about performing the act of research. So although it was personal because it's about um, the experience that my mother and I had together doing genealogical research on our own family and getting to know our ancestors and traveling together, but it's basically about researching <laughs> So, so to write something that I'm now calling a memoir, that's really about something that I never truly openly spoke about before writing these poems makes the poems feel, it's just very different. I think that I still have that sense of, okay, this is a poem. It's not me. I'm very intellectually able to separate myself from the work, revise the work, take and hear criticism and feedback, etc. You know, I feel that regular kind of distance between my personal identity and the work that I've produced. But at the same time, it really chronicles my personal life. So it's a new relationship with the work that I really, I think a lot of writers 
tend to write very personal poems. <laughs> so I feel quite, quite like, you know, maybe I'm late in my quote career to be writing a personal book. <laughs> and it's, and it's a shock for me to be having this experience. Um, I think, I think people think of poetry as a very personal thing, but it doesn't always have to be. Yeah, that, that is, that is so interesting. These poems are, um, I would say like vulnerable to the point of being blades that kind of cut you open. Um, I personally have not had the experience with OCD, but I felt the poems. I mean, I like was put inside this experience. And I think that's because they were so personal. I don't think like I couldn't have written these poems um, because it, it was very obvious that they were written from experience. I would not be able to put someone inside the experience the way that you did. And I think that's that's one of the things I think people come to poetry for. Um, and it's also one thing um, that is extremely hard to do uh, in a way that is is genuine and sincere. And I think, um, I mean, that's why like most of the, the lines that I've got um, that jumped out at me uh, are about like, oh my gosh, you named an experience that I had that I didn't, I didn't know anyone else had that experience. Um, and that's what, I think that's what good writing does. It helps the reader feel seen. There's this one line I'm going to read from the poem called Scar. Uh, you write, when your hand slits open on the metal edge of a bulletin board, you tell no one. Embarrassed by your ordinary humanness dripping onto the library carpet, your body is made of light and spirit. You aren't supposed to bleed. And I was like, right, we are embarrassed when we get hurt, aren't we? What, what in the world is that about? I remember reacting to that when I was a child as well. Like I would fall and I would on the wood chips on the playground and just like, totally gash my knee and I would hide it. That would be my first instinct was to hide it. So like, where does this idea come from that we're just, like supposed to like kids know this, they know right. we're supposed to hide. Why are we embarrassed when we get hurt? I think it's a shared experience that a lot of us have that revolves around perfectionism. I mean, this poem for me, Scar, is about being perfect and getting good grades in school, walking perfectly in line, and getting hurt is the announcement of a vulnerability that perfection shouldn't allow for. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't bleed. I should be, I should be perfect. I shouldn't cause any trouble for anyone. You know, so there is this sense of embarrassment when, oh gosh, you know, my body, because there's blood in it and I can cut it open and the blood will come out. My body is forcing me to be vulnerable in a moment where I'm trying to hide all my vulnerabilities and just be a perfect little elementary school robot who, you know, who can get good grades in school and get all the pluses and the check pluses and never a minus on her report card. <laughs> oh my gosh, the check pluses. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, they haunt me in my sleep also still. Oh my gosh. Um, this thing, this thing you said about trying to be, you know, just trying to be good, follow the rules, do the right things. You also mentioned that in the poem Scar, you write, it was exhausting being good. Even now, all these years later, you are still tired. And I mean, that's another thing where I was like, oh yeah, that's probably why I'm exhausted all the time. I could sleep 10 hours and still be exhausted because I spent the first 20 years of my life trying to be good. And I wonder, the thought that came to me was, why is it so tiring to be good? And is it as tiring to be bad? I don't know that I've ever been bad enough to know the answer to that question. <laughs> I think it depends on, sometimes I love thinking about, oh gosh, what if I, what if I wasn't so worried about X, Y, Z or getting a good grade? Or what if it just didn't bother me? That would be so, that would just be met with so much relief. I think I could sleep better. Um, and I think part of OCD, I mean, I think, I think I, I heard what you said earlier in that even if you don't have OCD, I think a lot of what I'm writing about in this book, lots of people have felt to some degree. And perfection is one of those things. Um, so I just lost track of the question. <laughs> it has happened. Can you start the question over? Yes. 
Totally. No problem. There's, um, it's more just, why is it so tiring to be good? And is it as tiring to be bad? And I also had the thought, like, I don't think I've ever been bad enough to know. I can't compare. <laughs> like, I've right. just, I've just We're definitely trapped in this perfectionism. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I think that it it is still exhausting trying to be good even to this day, even now that I'm 48 years old. And I still feel the exhaustion from having tried to be perfect at age eight or nine, you know, it, it hangs on. Right. And I feel like the lingering of that has, uh, as kids, we somehow wire it with survival. Like if we aren't good, we won't be liked. And if we aren't liked, then we'll be abandoned. And as kids, if you're abandoned, you don't survive. Somehow we know that as kids, that we need the adults around us to take care of us. And so therefore they have to like us. And therefore the way that we get adults to like us is to be perfect. And that is very hard to shed as adults. Like there's still that wiring together of yeah. behavior and survivability. Um, that it's sort of just an innate thing that we're born with. And maybe some people are more worried about it or more sensitive to it than others. And certainly from my, you know, my personal childhood, my parents never could care less if I got a check minus, you know, that wasn't the end of their lives. It certainly was the end of my life or it felt that way at the time. So I think that there's just a high level of self-expectation that feels exhausting because you can never get rid of it. If it's coming from yourself, you carry it with you everywhere you go. Yes. Yes. And I think that, that I, I felt in the poems that there was this, it was almost a ghost of, of, of perfectionism, but also of failing to live up to the perfectionism that either you held for yourself or that you believed others held for you or both. And that, I think that haunted, there was a few uh, little ghosts in here that were haunt big, big ghosts that were, that haunted this collection in the, in the very best way. I mean, this, I want someone to make a haunted house of these poems. Like I just want, because it's so, they're so real. They're so visceral. Like almost ev there's in every poem, there was a line where I was like, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only person. I thought I was the only person that could not have my foot hang over the edge of the bed. We're going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, I still, as an adult, have that problem. <laughs> and not have my foot escape from the edge. <laughs> um, one of the specters in this collection is death and the fear of death. And I... Um, love talking about this because uh, that I think is also a universal thing. Uh, people may not admit to it, but I think everybody's a little bit afraid of death or the process of dying because it's so unknown. No one's ever died and lived to tell about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so this one, this line, I think kind of uh, encapsulates one of my curiosities about this uh, death slash fear of death. And it's uh, from the poem Conquers. And you write, uh, from the time you secretly held the blue stones, is what you're talking about here, pressing indentations in your palm, they seemed like hardened lumps of water, the possibility of transformation. You might become something else, like the dead. And I was like, whoa, like the dead, to they totally, they're totally something else. Like, mm -hmm. All the people I've known that have died, like they're, they're, they, I have the memory of them, but they themselves are totally different. And the questions that I that arose from this were like, what do the dead become, and what do we become in grieving those we've lost? I think this is something that I probably thought quite a lot about while I was writing my third collection, "Call Me When You Want to Talk About the Tombstones," because my mother and I had a really huge piece of paper that we'd carry with us through through the graveyards and it was our family tree and we would mark off whenever we found a grave for one of our family members and the act of visiting in a graveyard that we had never visited before and finding people that were related to us just you know it just <laughs> I ask in that book as well like what do they look like you know the, especially for the people who died long enough ago that we have no photos of them or it was before photography was invented so there couldn't have been a photo of them and we just spent a lot of time I think you know not in a macabre particularly way but imagining like what is there 
you know, I'm so close to whatever is left of the physical body of that person that I'm related to, um, that I carry their genetic material. And it's just something, something that kind of haunts me. And this poem in particular from Exploding Head Conquers that you read from is about a graveyard that was near my home when we lived in England for a few years when I was really little. And there was this graveyard where all of the blue stones or all of the graves were covered in these blue stones, like big rectangles, like the the shape of the coffin kind of laid into the ground covered in these blue stones. Um, I don't know, maybe it was easier than mowing, <laughs> but, but I loved those blue stones. I just wanted to have them. I remember we stole, my sister and I stole some one time and probably got in trouble. That's one moment of being a little bad, not perfect. Um, <laughs> but just thinking about thinking about that transformation. And I think, I think, especially for a child, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's yeah. Even cause it's, it's unknown. And there's this sense, I think that at least what I remember from a child when I was a child was, oh, the adults know everything like adults. They just, they have to, that's what being an adult is. So they know all these secrets that I don't know yet. And how in the world am I going to know? all the things so there's this unknown and then there's this oh my gosh someday I'm gonna have to know yes um <laughs> the inevitability of of mortality yeah but I think for me I I think I always did have the sense that yes my parents know everything the adults know everything but also carrying all of these secrets for so many years and having this very rich troubling wild upsetting obsessive compulsive disorder undiagnosed for many years happening in my mind when I was a child I had a very clear sense that I knew things that others didn't or that I had secrets <laughs> that others didn't and that they were dark shameful secrets I shouldn't share that they made me weird in some way or that there was something wrong with me in some way we took it all we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, that comes through really clearly in this uh, collection this this one of the specters too is is uh, secrecy and what is okay to share what is not okay to share as as we talked about before like oh uh, I have to hide the fact that I just sliced my hand open because I'm that's not supposed to happen uh, and there's this it's just it's almost you're right it's this innate sense of shame that's the first thing that happens when a kid gets hurt um, nobody has to teach it to them it's just there uh, like I don't remember my parents ever saying. You know, like you should never bleed, bad girl. And yet that's the voice in my head. Somehow that was there from when I was very young. Um, one of the things I think that uh encapsulates the experience, one of the experiences of reading about obsessive compulsive disorder is this thought about if if I focus on it enough, I'll be protected from it. If I do this enough, that is my salvation almost and you capture that in this poem called from corp in, blah, this poem called corpse meditation you write you cling so tightly to this world it is the reason your mind obsesses over leaving it the more you meditate on death the more you are protected from it um i i would just love to hear <laughs> i would love to hear your thoughts on that uh that seemed to to crystallize for me the experience of one of the experiences of, of obsessive compulsive disorders, like, oh, that is what this is protection. These rituals are protection in some way. Yeah, it can feel sort of superstitious 
in -hmm. some ways, you know, like if I, if I count the four sides of something, then I'm safe, or it's just kind of a reminder that, oh, this, every time I count a four-sided thing, I get four. So therefore I'm safe. It's okay. And I think sometimes with the rumination involved in OCD, which is kind of thinking of something over and over again, and getting kind of trapped in that cyclical pattern, is that if you do think of it, enough times you will be protected from it and there's something scary about OCD in particular is that it kind of attacks those you love the most and the things you love the most like being alive (laughs) you know my the ones that I love you know and there there's a lot of um fear of certain things happening to those that you love and ruminating on the actual violent, gruesome details of the things that would be the worst possible scenario you can imagine. But OCD says, if you spend time thinking about the worst, violent, gruesome scenario you can imagine, that will not happen. So it kind of, which of course, there is no protective quality about thinking about something obsessively. And it's only hurting you, especially when it's the very thing that is the worst thing you can come up with. Um, and there is something they say that OCD is ego dystonic. So it it works against your values. It is the absolute opposite of the thing that you most value. So for me, I feel that that is sort of a comforting concept to make, to remind me that even though it seems like I might be obsessing over violent things, I'm not a violent person. It is because I'm the opposite of a violent person that OCD is choosing that ego dystonic thing, that thing that goes against my ego and against my values um, to cause me to obsess over. That leads me right into this line that I lifted out uh, of the poem called Intrusive, where you write, it is natural to wonder if you might kill someone. This thought is not an intruder who shatters the bedroom window, but the fish that hatches already in the water. The mind is intrinsically capable of fearsome things. So what you were saying about uh, it works against your values, that's the intrusive nature of the thoughts then. And it was, even though I have not personally had an experience of repetitive intrusive thoughts when I read the line it is natural to wonder if you might kill someone I was like oh so I'm not a monster (laughs) Um, right and OCD can make you think about whether you might have killed someone or whether you might kill someone over and over again all the time which can be very confusing especially when you're a little a little kid and you know, there's a lot of shame associated with OCD because of this, because it's not just wanting things to be in a certain order or wanting cleanliness or, you know, alphabetize my spice rack, et cetera. People joke about being OCD about things. And I think that it really creates an environment where we don't understand what OCD is. So when I was really little and I was afraid of these very scary thoughts, I didn't I did feel shame associated with them. I did feel that if I'm thinking about this horrible thing happening, I must be secretly a horrible person. <laughs> but of course I'm not, you know, and and so understanding OCD and how it functions and why it chooses the things it chooses for you to obsess about. I, I just feel, again, it's sort of kind of a comforting, reassuring thought that no, no, you're not a monster <laughs> because you had this idea. Right, like that's part of the nature of... um of the condition of the, like, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's a disorder is because it's not, this is not who you, who you are. This is, this is what happens as part of the, part of the disorder, which I think as a kid would be super confusing if you don't have anyone to talk to about it, or if you don't know what's going on, how are you supposed to parse like, well, these thoughts are coming from my head. So it must be about me. So I must be terrible. And then you're like, that just vamps up the conditioning we're like oh no think about terrible things then you're not terrible but then you're like but i'm thinking about terrible things so i must be terrible <laughs> like i can see the the uh the maddening cyclical nature of all of this too and it became clear i think the second time i went through this book um one of the poems that stood out uh because i would imagine this that drastically impacts the quality of life to 
really underestimate underestimation of the galaxy probably um and i think you you capture it actually really well in this poem that you write called quality of life uh and rather than me quote from it um because when i was as i said before we started recording i uh when i was um quoting lines uh that jumped out at me i realized i quoted this entire poem um by the time I got to the end of it. So I wondered if you might uh, read Quality of Life for us. Sure, this is Quality of Life. Part of the problem is that you were in a horrific accident on your way here and you are already dead. Your body disrobes, the skins of your hands float freely in the marsh, starfish among the cattails. But would you say your quality of life is affected? You've left a dozen bodies behind just today. One drowned in the bathtub, several wandering blindly in the kitchen, clanging into each other like wind chimes. One floats inside the sunken car just below the overpass. Now that it's getting dark, the frogs are springing from their cool, fat bellies. Who will come in wading boots to scoop your palms into a net? You are just vapor and light, pooled loosely in this chair, neither ghost nor angel. Right at this moment, an airplane is crashing through the roof. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, I've read that poem three times, and it's it's realer every time. And there's always something else that sort of jumps out. And this time, what jumped out was you've left a, you've left so many bodies behind before. Um, uh, and this question could apply to to this poem or any poem in general. Um, when you when you write down, or are you writing down like these are this is the actual experience as it is, or are you explaining things that like are these like I've actually these are the thoughts I was having these are the thoughts I do have or is it these are the metaphorical representations of the experience of OCD does my I feel like my question maybe does not make sense at all oh I think that is a really good question and in fact my father hopefully he won't mind me saying this um he just i just brought my advanced reading copy back home for thanksgiving and he read it for the first time i think my parents have read a lot of the poems have been published online and in various journals, but he sat and read the thing through cover to cover. <laughs> and that night I said goodnight to him. And he said, well, if I can sleep now, you know, and I was like, I'm sorry, this it is a little nightmarish. I'm sorry. And he said, well, I just hope that you made up at least 50% of what's in the book. <laughs> and so I said, no, it's, you know, it's real. That's really what I'm thinking, you know, which is, which is perhaps for me, it was an eye-opening moment. You know, I, I'm leading up to the publication of this book. People are going to read it. And I, I felt my father, who knows me very well, who, you know, was with me throughout my entire childhood, kind of look at me differently, like with a curiosity, like, what is going on inside that brain? You know, <laughs> that 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 actually was my experience as a child. That yes, I do drive down the street and I visualize myself veering off and crashing into the into the marsh, you know, we have a lot, we have a lot of bodies of water here in Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, and, you know, driving down the isthmus, and there's a marsh on the left and a marsh on the right. And, you know, I just, I have visualized so many versions of myself veering off the road and crashing and being under the water. And all of it is very vivid, very clear. Um, and a lot of writing this book was putting that actual fantasy or rumination or intrusive idea down on the page so obviously there was a lot of art that is involved in how I was writing these poems but a lot of it is reporting actual thoughts yeah yeah I, I would I would uh, agree here a lot of it was very nightmarish but that is the nature of 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 OCD actually and I think you captured it you captured it very well is if <clears throat> if you can keep someone up at night you're like well yeah that was my experience um and i 
one thing that we talked about at the beginning of, of our interview was writing things down takes your power back. It gives you agency back over that thing. Um, did you find that that was your experience in writing down the actual thoughts and the experience of OCD in this, in this collection? It definitely has given me back some power and agency over it. And I think that it's, it's tough because on the one hand, I'm having a very somewhat uncomfortable situation that, that I've created for myself in which I am suddenly publicly talking about something I never talked about before. So it's really having a lack of language available to discuss it because I don't have a history of years in therapy or years in trying to help make other people understand what it's like inside my mind. And when I first started writing these poems, it was really the first time I wrote down a lot of this stuff or said a lot of this stuff, period, <laughs> um, beyond just, you know, a few mentions of things to my closest friends and family. But, you know, it it's a lot more than just, oh, you know, my husband knows I'm counting things constantly. I'm counting right now, you know, I'm counting four sides of this Zoom screen. You know, it's just, it's just constant in my mind. But then there's also the violence. There are the scary parts of it. There, you know, there are a lot of things that I wasn't comfortable admitting. And that's, that's part of one of the things about OCD that, that creates a sense of shame is that it's hard to admit that you had those thoughts. That's not me. That's completely not who I am. And also, I'm quite happy. I'm quite successful. I've had, you know, OCD to the extent that it has been very disruptive in my life, but I have borne it alone, which is also quite sad. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there were so many compulsions that I did that were internal and are internal that if I don't talk about it, most people would not know that I had OCD. You, no one needs to know I have OCD unless I want to tell them. So that's a position of obviously privilege for me that a lot of people don't have where they can't hide their OCD in certain situations when they would want to. But also it puts me in a position of having not ever been forced to, to, to go to therapy. Like if I had been a child and couldn't get through the doorway, or if I had to, instead of counting the four sides of things, I had to stand and tap it with my hand, something visually that my parents could see, you know, I, I might've gotten help sooner. Um, so it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's a really tough, complex disorder and it manifests so many different ways in different people. There are like endless things to be obsessed about, <laughs> you know, and endless weird rituals to come up with, you know, and, and OCD can change rules at any time, even my, in my own mind. You know, I can, um, obsessively thinking about something protects me from that thing happening or obsessively thinking about something makes it happen. You know, like OCD can decide to change the rules at any time. So it's, it's tough. It's tough. And I, I do hope that in writing this book, and I'm glad I've heard you say already a little bit that you can feel yourself in it, recognize yourself in it, because I think there are so many things about um, intrusive thoughts and anxiety and um, just just weird, weird ideas float into everyone's head. It's it's a human experience. It's a thought, you know, the thing with OCD, though, is that it get, you get stuck on it. And you can't let it go. And then you have to do these compulsions in response. And it just is more disruptive. But I think and I hope that it's something that everyone can on some level relate to and see themselves in that we're really not that different. That's what I love about this is when um, when I when this book came to me, uh, it was it was about it was so like, oh, this is the experience of obsessive compulsive disorder, which is why I was like, yes, I want to read it. I don't have that condition and I would love to know more about it. Um, but I know that's what po poetry doesn't really inform you about a thing. Poetry puts you in the thing. And that's why it's that's why it's not an essay. Um, essays are great for certain things, but um, I wanted to have the experience of, of and of course, that reveals my privilege. I get to dip into the experience and then I get to close the book and dip out. Um, but I also think because, I, there was something else that was drawing me to it where I was like, 
I mean, I definitely, I don't have OCD, but I can relate to the intrusive thoughts at times. Um, or just even, I want to talk about this line now. It's, <laughs> I said out loud, oh my gosh, I scared the cat. Um, <laughs> this is from, this is the, uh, the foot dangling off the bed line. This is the, from the poem, this is all true. If your foot dangles off the edge of the bed, a metal blade rises from the floor and slices it off. <laughs> like the crazy uh, rules that our minds make up for us. Yes. I I think, I mean, I don't know. It wasn't, that thought was like, okay, it wasn't exactly the metal blade. Mine was more like a monster hand is going to come <laughs> grab you by the ankle and suck you under the black hole, under into the black hole that's under your bed that you didn't know was there until you deigned to put your foot over the edge of the bed. And I want to, I just of all the themes that have been swirling around. So I've definitely had that thought. I've had it every time my foot even slightly goes over the edge of the bed. Um, I'm a, a grown woman. I'm, I'm almost 38. And this happens to me. This happened to me last night. Uh, even like under the cover. Oh, it's not under the covers. Now it's exposed. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm 48 and it's still happening. So. <laughs> You have at least 10 more years of this. Dang it. <laughs> I just was like, that's a thing kids do, right? And I felt, I actually was like, I felt shame that I had not grown out of this. And then I read this line and I was like, she is not talking about when she was a child. This is like a, this is a present tense reality here. I love it. All the poems are in present tense and they're all in the second person, which is very hard to do. It's very hard to write well in the second person, I will say. And I I didn't feel that the poems were talking to me. I felt they were talking about me. And which is that's why it's that's why that line. It's very hard to get past the talking to you, but rather talking about I felt like I was reading about myself, which um sounds a little bit narcissistic, but that's why everybody <laughs> reads. Everybody reads because they want to find themselves in whatever it is that they're reading. And uh this this foot dangling off the edge of the bed. I mean, I just, I, I was, I was like liberated <laughs> in that moment, probably not from the fear of the foot being chopped off or grabbed by a monster, but from the shame of still being afraid of that thing happening, my version of the foot dangling off the bed. And I know this sounds like a tiny thing, this foot dangling off the bed, but I know that this is a almost universal experience too, because of how many memes I've seen online about this. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I just, I mean, I grabbed it because, I mean, like we could say, where does this seemingly universal experience come from? But uh, I, I don't need to get philosophical about this one. This is just so concretely real for me. And I'm so glad that I'm not alone in this. And I just want to share uh, with listeners, I bet most of you are also afraid of having your foot chopped off or being sucked under the bed by it or whatever that, um, and this is, this is how a lot of the lines in um, in this collection, Exploding Head hit me. It was like, I cannot believe that I am not the only person that has yeah. this experience. <laughs> I don't, and you don't, you don't have to have OCD to have these experiences, not to minimize the experience of OCD, of course. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, uh, this is so real and so vivid and so, so particular that it's universal, um, that, uh, I wonder, did it feel therapeutic to write the book? And is that is that why why you wrote it? Uh, or is there is there just a naming it to have agency over it quality? Well, first, I want to go back to something else you mentioned, which was that there's sort of a universality to it that we can all kind of see little bits of ourselves in it. And I think for me, that's one of the reasons that it was actually really important to me to never say obsessive compulsive disorder in the poems. There's nowhere in the book that it says that's what it is. And there's a poem called Diagnosis, where the diagnosis is not clear at all. There's another poem called Exploding Head Syndrome, which is actually what the title of the book is based on that poem or taken from that poem. And in, of course, that's really the only syndrome that is that is diagnosed in the book. And that's not actually what the book is about. So I felt that it's, it, 
it's more universal. It's more, um, it's more concrete. It's more sort of real if we're not constantly attributing certain feelings or experiences or ideas to a label, to a disorder to say, oh, this is OCD. No, it's, it's, you know, and there are even things where I didn't like perfectionism, for example, that we were talking about before. I never had considered perfectionism part of OCD. I mean, now, obviously that I'm saying it, it sounds pretty obvious. Of course it is part of OCD, but I, it was only recently I was part of a writing group. We discussed um, OCD actually in particular and how our perfectionism gets in the way of writing and being creative. And I was thinking, why are we talking about this? Perfectionism is a whole other, you know, like I always thought that was a whole other part of my personality, you know, but it, but it can be, it's, it's all kind of embroiled in. So, so who's to say what experience is part of OCD and part of just a human experience that we all share. There's a monster under the bed or, you know, a knife has been installed in the bed and it's going to slice off your foot. So it, you know, we all have, have to some extent, these ideas to what extent it, um, interrupts your life and stops you from being successful at that's the point at which it becomes a disorder. But, um, so would you mind rephrasing the question that you asked that I skipped over? No, that was great. Um, it was, uh, just basically like, um, this just, where does this, uh, universe? Wow. Let me back up. Where does like, why did I, why did I start writing? Yeah. Was it like trying to get down this universal experience? Was it trying to get down a particular experience? Um, and was it therapeutic? It's an interesting question. And I have been trying to figure out the answer, but I can't, I honestly cannot remember. <laughs> like, what was that moment when I first sat down and thought, I'm going to write a poem about this? What I do remember, and this was about 10 years ago now, what I do remember very vividly was the experience of bringing my poem on a piece of paper with copies for everyone to my dining room table where my poetry group met and sharing it and saying, I don't want to talk about what this is yet. I just want to talk about what's on the page. And I was just very terrified. And I remember that my poetry group was fantastic. And I got a lot of encouragement to keep going. And bit by bit, I started to be able to say, okay, I'm writing about OCD, <laughs> you know, like, this is what I'm doing. This is me, this, you know, and, and it sort of was, um, yeah, it was kind of healing and liberating in that way to enable me to find a voice, to be able to talk about things I hadn't talked about before, because it's sort of easier for me in poetry um, than perhaps in real life. And yes, I had shared with a therapist before and that kind of thing, but not just among my colleagues and my friends. So it, there was a therapeutic result, I think, in that, as we said before, it helped me gain agency over it. It helped me claim something publicly that I that I wasn't afraid to say, this is what it is. And yes, most people really don't understand exactly what OCD can entail, or that I can say I have OCD and they think it's one thing, but it's that's not at all my experience. So being able to write this book, I think, has been a healing experience for me, just in the sense that I was able to get it down. And say, hey, this is, I want to create for you the feeling of what it's like to be in my brain. Really, that really that's what I wanted to do. Perhaps yeah. I felt alone. <laughs> and I'm and I'm already starting not to feel so alone. And that I think that's that's therapeutic in and of itself, right? That and that's what this book did for me too. Um, not even not even having a diagnosis of OCD, but that the just all the lines, the um, it's natural to wonder if you might kill someone. It's the your foot dangling off the edge of the bed. Of course, it's going to get cut off or grabbed by a monster or whatever. Um, it's exhausting being good. Uh, you're not supposed to bleed. Um, the more you are, the more you meditate on death, the more you're protected from it. I mean, I've I've had thoughts like that where it was like, okay, if I'm if I have enough anxiety about a thing, that will make it not happen. Um, and and then of course, as as a rule follower, I can only imagine how maddening it must be that then OCD can just change it whenever it can just change the rules whenever it doesn't have to ask your permission. It just switches That's it up. That's not fair. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is against the rules. Actually, the rules are that the rules can't change. Um. Uh. I uh. I love also this imagery here. Uh. As as I mentioned before, I think if if there was a haunted house made out of this book, it would be the um the the most beautiful haunting 
grotesque, gorgeous haunted house that there ever was. It's so vivid. It's so haunting. Um, one example of this imagery that helps put like what you said, you wanted the reader to be inside the experience. And part of that is with this very sharp, like vivid imagery. This is an example from the poem, Seven Darknesses. You write, tonight, this spongy cloud blotting copies of the moon across the sky. Like, okay, I have to say as a poet, I was jealous I didn't write that line. It's, I could see it exactly. I mean, for me, I don't know what you were seeing, but for me, I could see a super clear picture of that scene. I mean, maybe it's one I'd seen before, maybe not, but that happens so many times. It happens so many times in this book. Um, and I, you don't have to give, an, give away any secrets, but where does this where does this like beautiful imagery come from? Well, first of all, thank you. <laughs> Secondly, it, oh my gosh, the process of writing for me is so frustrating. I know it's frustrating for everyone, but I feel like I'm working in the, I constantly feel like I'm working in the wrong medium, right? Like I'm actually a filmmaker, but I have no skills or I'm actually I actually should draw this, but I just can't draw. So I'm settling on words, you know, and it, it, and it does feel like, you know, I often hear writers talk about their process and say, oh, I start with a line or I hear something or I have a line. And I'm like, what is that? What is a lot? What would that even look like to be, to, what would the line be? You know, like I just, that doesn't rarely happen for me. Like I see things and I think that's part of OCD as well. Like it's very, for me, very crystal clear, very visual, very, and I always feel like in my writing, all I'm ever trying to do is describe what I see, which is the most hellish, frustrating experience. And I think it takes me a long time to get there because there is this tendency when you visualize something to want to over explain it and have almost too much control over the visual experience that your reader will have. So it takes me a while to cut back and cut back and let go of what I see in, until there's just enough language to suggest what I see and hope that the reader is going to see, you know, they're going to put their own twist on it. Um, yeah. So language is always kind of language is my medium, right? But it's the last thing I come to. Wow. <laughs> I would be making a film, but I have no skills. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's probably why these images are so vivid because you actually see them. And uh, that's the thing I struggle with the most is seeing a thing. I do, I go by sound. Like when I read my poem out loud, when I'm editing it, like, okay, did that sound right? I don't really know what the image is, but did it sound right? This is, so this is why I was like, this is so, so, so vivid. It's so, that's why I could be in it. Like I could be like, yep, I am right on that lake that has that moon being blotted across it. Like I'm immediately right there. Uh, I and I, that's it's it feels like it's a superpower. Um, and of course, from the outside, it is. But for you, it's this struggle of, okay, but it's not vivid enough. Language is not vivid enough for what I see. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish uh, I could I, just put what I see on the page, but unfortunately, yeah. I have to use words. <laughs> the words are in the way <laughs> oh my gosh that that's that is such an interesting thing to hear a poet say wow um it's a constant frustration <laughs> oh my gosh but well, a maddening one that I'm obviously obsessed with because I can't I can't stop I just love 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 poetry and, and this is your fourth book right yes yes yeah um and your first one was 2011. So this has been almost 13, 13 years uh, between your first and your fourth. That's, and I think to me, this is some of the most vivid poetry that I've, that I've read, um, which makes it very effective for just like yanking the reader right into it. Speaking of being yanked from a bed, yanked from the bed right into this. It's not an abyss. Um, I mean, it is, and it isn't, uh, but yeah, so so speaking of that, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. We didn't even get to the whole like motherhood thing about uh, what is that like? What is what is it like being a mother and having OCD? Um, so on that note, I mean, there's several other questions I have here, but uh, I want, well, I, okay, I have to mention this line and I just 
you can say as much or as little as you want about it. I don't have a specific question about it. This line also kind of, if my foot was hanging over the edge, would have been the, the monster that grabbed it. Um, it's from The Red Suitcase. And you write, the ghost of your mother stares directly into your mother's eyes. Like, I that line completely stopped me. I think I forgot everything else I was doing. I was I was on a train reading this, but I don't I don't think I I just had to stop and think so much about that. That line halted and haunted me every time I read it. And this uh, is thank you. This is kind of a poem about being haunted by a memory and my in you know in real life this is a true story my mother truly believes I had this doll that I don't remember at all in a red suitcase that I don't remember at all <laughs> and granted you know my mind is busy with a lot of other things so I don't have the best memory for true real events and my mother re really she remembers everything so I trust her that this doll existed in a red suitcase but we can't find it no one has any memory of where it went what doll was in there where <laughs> Like, did we give it away? Did it, is it, you know, somewhere in the house? And I have looked my own house top to bottom. We have looked in her house. We can't find, we can't find it. So there's this sort of haunting of your own memory and your own inability to trust what you remember about your own life and how we, for each other in a family, are, are witnesses for each other. Like we witness each other's lives and we act as kind of living archival documents of each other's experiences. And for there to be, you know, in all families, I think we have, we remember things differently. And, you know, sisters have a completely different childhood, even though we grew up in the same house. So this is kind of one of those moments. And I, and I felt that in this poem, it's nighttime. The mother is looking out the window where the forest is beyond the window and the light is on her. It's at night. So there's sort of this reflection ghost image of her hanging in the window or kind of hanging up in the forest. <laughs> So there's a lot of haunting that goes on in the forest as well here in this, in my childhood home. Yeah, it really kind of seemed like you, you lived in a haunted forest a little bit. Yes. <laughs> I love this idea of making a haunted house out of my book as well. Like, let's, let's make that happen, Megan. This is I mean, that would idea. be, that would be probably, I mean, that would just be, that would be like a destination. People would come to, to Madison, Wisconsin specifically and only for that, I think. Um, I mean, Madison, Wisconsin to me is like always under four feet of snow. Uh, it's I mean it's where my dad did his almost PhD uh so there but that was in the 70s and then the Vietnam War ended so that's why he's six months away perpetually from a doctorate in philosophy um anyways but yeah they moved to Colorado to warm up um oh wow which don't blame uh, them yep well yeah Colorado <laughs> like um I don't know I was not particularly warm all the time in Colorado no but that's fine that's fine um Man, there's so, oh, there's so many other ones. I, um, but uh, we are coming up on the hour here, um, the hour of talking, which of course, um, as I say in all my interviews, I could talk forever. I think uh, you listeners are probably familiar with that at this point. So uh, just a few more things before we close. The first uh, is, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? No, I don't think so. No, this has been great. Awesome. Okay. I mean, I know we didn't cover everything. I have like four or five more amazing lines, but um, that will just be something that uh, you listeners will, uh, who will become readers of this book will have to get. You'll have to wait till 2024 when it comes out. But uh, Cynthia, tell us where we can uh, get the book when it comes out, when it comes out, uh, and where we can find more of your work, your other books, uh, where we can follow you, where we can... Um, keep up with this magical, amazing, beautiful, gorgeous haunted house. Thanks. So yeah, Exploding Head will be out February 6th, 2024. And you can purchase it on Persia Books or bookshop.org or um, Amazon, almost anywhere books are sold. You should be able to get a copy. And you can find me on my website at CynthiaMarieHoffman.com. And I'm on Instagram at CynthiaMarieHoffman and Facebook and Twitter as well. Excellent. I will put all of those links in the show notes as well so that they are easy to find. Uh, cannot recommend Exploding Head um, more highly. Uh, and I will be getting copies of all three of your other books as well. Uh, this this poem, this, this poem, this collection is uh, 
I mean, I have like five pages of notes on this. So um, just lines that I was, that just helped me feel as, as one reader just feels so seen. Um, and that experience of being seen is the antidote to shame. So thank you so much for that uh, experience. Thank you. Um, that's, I think that's, that's what, uh, what I hope to strive for as, as a writer and what I uh, seek in what I read. So I really um, so much appreciate uh, your time today and this book, the time that you spent and the vulnerability that it took to write such a book um, is uh, truly uh, an honor uh, to, to me and to those who will read it. Um, Thank you. With our last few minutes here, I would love for you to share uh, one more poem, um, whichever one that you would would like to. Sure. Um, I'll read a poem called The Face Has Seven Holes, which is sort of a weird little poem about what it's like in my mind as a child when I viewed um, people would come up and start talking to me. And I was very busy counting the seven holes on the face, which are the two eyes, the two nostrils, the mouth and the two ears. And if you do it in a certain pattern, it creates an upside down star. So I was very busy drawing stars on people's faces while they were talking to me. I love so it. So let me find that poem and I will read it for you here. Oh, I love hearing the backstory to poems also. You th- you've got one idea about it and then you hear the backstory and you're like, wow. <laughs> well, you'll hear in this poem also, there was a moment growing up and earlier um, during this interview, we talked about, I talked about the difference between interior OCD compulsions that you can kind of hide and exterior things that you can't control that others will see that are clearly visual, visible. And so I used to do a lot of blinking on things. So blinking happens quite a bit in this book. And that was a childhood thing. One day I got hit in the face by a volleyball during uh, gym class and my eyes swelled up. And um, somebody said to me, is that why you're blinking so much? No, I wasn't blinking because my eye was swollen. I was blinking because I was blinking a star on your face. No, but I wasn't going to say that. (laughs) So that was a cue to me. And I was, you know, luckily or not luckily able to replace that exterior kind of visible compulsion with something interior. So like I learned that I could draw stars on people's faces without necessarily blinking. (laughs) So so that's what's happening in this poem. Hopefully you feel a little taste of what it what it felt like um, when I was a kid. Yeah. The face has seven holes. Someone is talking to you. Look at her face when she's talking to you. Draw a star. Start with the right nostril. Draw a line to the left ear, up to the right eye, down to the mouth. Left eye, right ear, left nostril. The face has seven holes. Blink on it. Seven blinks. Her deep black eyes one two three four moving mouth five six seven in gym class a volleyball hits you in the face your eye swells is that why you're blinking so much someone says she leans her face in seven fourteen twenty one twenty eight this behavior is evident you look like an idiot thirty five forty two forty nine her moving lips fifty six sixty three Her face has seven holes, 70. Did she say something? Draw a star, blink on it. Wow, thank you so much. And thank you so much for the backstory. Um, I think that's one curious thing about about poetry is there are so many poems I've read that I'll never know the backstory. So I'll never know if my interpretation is even close to what that what the poet was thinking. Um, I know that the meaning is shared, the meaning making is shared between the writer and the reader, but um, (laughs) I, the, when I blink on it, I was like, is that a, is that a play on words of think on it? Like I was like, not, I was not, I, uh, I went in a way. Yes, it is. Since obsessive compulsive disorder is an obsessive kind of thinking disorder. Yes. Um, This, but this, I just, that's what, one of the reasons why I one of the reasons I do this because I I want to know I'm nosy I want to know all the things <laughs> I want to know what's behind all the poems. Um, so I, I have a podcast where I ask you all the things and then share with my audience. Um, I'm glad you do it. I Thank am you. so glad that you were uh, that you were available to come onto this uh, show tonight. I am so appreciative of this collection. I'm excited to read more of your work. 
Uh, and so I'm excited for February. Um, it's uh, that would be uh, my birthday month. So I'm excited. Mine for too. Happy oh, February birthday. Yes. February babies are the best. Um, <laughs> me and my niece. And yeah, what what day? For 28th. You? Okay. Oh, all right. 26th for me. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. So end of February, that's, that's the best time. Um, <laughs> what, what, it, what it lacks in, in a length that makes up for in um, depth, I will say so many good people born in, in February and depth of uh, snow here in yes. Madison. Also in Seattle, which yes. I take very personally, it shouldn't snow in Seattle. <laughs> and then it chooses February to do so. Of course. Uh, I'm not a fan of snow. Anyways, um, thank you so much for coming on today, for sharing your work, for sharing your vulnerability, your story um, with us. And um, I am very excited for February when uh, you listeners can follow the links in the show notes that I will put uh, at the bottom here um, of this interview where you will be able to find Exploding Head and more about uh, Cynthia's work. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, uh, listeners. And we will um, we will see you next time.